0: Hello everyone and welcome to the ninth episode of Autism with a Pinch of Salt. In today's episode I speak with Professor Courtney Norberry. She led the SCALES project which was the first ever UK population study of language development and disorder at school entry and was a longitudinal study which lasted 10 years. It was a real honour for me to speak to Professor Norbury, who is somebody who has had such an influence over our understanding of language and language disorders. So I hope that
1: you all enjoy as much as I did. All right, so
0: thank you so much for coming on today, Professor Norbury. So I'll start with a, a sort of simple question. Just for our, our listeners that may have not heard of DLD before, could, can you explain sure what thing. DLD and, and is? Sure thanks and for what having me on. It's a, a real pleasure to be here. DLD.
2: Um, so DLD stands for Developmental Language Disorder. It's a condition in which uh, children are having difficulties acquiring their own language, and um, And we know that there are some genetic influences that are affecting the way the brain is developing. So it's just harder for those children to learn from the usual input that that kids get. Um, And that can be combined um, sometimes too with with things in the environment. So maybe they're not getting as much input or um, things happen in the environment, combinations of those two things. Um, but they're basically finding it really hard to learn from the input that they receive. And so what that means is sometimes children who have language DLD, um, they don't understand what other people are saying to them. They might not know what the words mean, or they might not understand what the grammar is telling them about the relationships between things, or they might lose the thread of what people are saying and, and get confused. And very often, Uh, You might notice it because they say a lot less and what they say might be very simple and might have um, errors in grammar that children tend to stop using when they're very young. So they might say, uh, I walked to school yesterday and leave ends off verbs or uh, they might leave out important constituents of the sentence so it's unclear sometimes when you're listening to them what they're trying to say. And it can take them just a really long time to, to process
1: information and then to come up with a response. I've been
0: chatting quite a lot about DLD recently just in my personal life to people that I meet and um, that sounds really sad actually, like my so my work is my life, but I have been chatting a lot about it and and some people have been finding it quite tricky to understand the difference between DLD and language disorder when it's associated with another condition. (laughs) Well essentially they're the same thing it's just um, that
2: sometimes kids will have a a language disorder that is um uh, is happening at the same time that other things are happening so you know we know for most developmental conditions like um autism and down syndrome and other things that affect intellectual abilities. Um, Fetal alcohol syndrome was one that came up yesterday. All of these developmental conditions that are leading to differences in the way the brain is developing. Language is quite vulnerable and it tends to be vulnerable in similar ways. And so the language disorder um, itself is probably pretty similar across those things. But of course it might look a little bit different because of the characteristics of those different uh, conditions that will also be affecting the way that children are learning and using language. Um, So I think that people do uh, I think people have become very concerned about making that differential diagnosis. And I think I would say the main thing as speech and language therapists that we can do is characterize the child's language and the impact that the language disorder is having on them. Um, And when we know that there's another condition, we can say this is occurring alongside this other condition. And if we don't know, we can either say, we think it's DLD because there is no other condition, or if we're not sure, we could say, well, it looks like DLD, but maybe we need more information about other aspects of development before we can confirm the diagnosis. But um, I think I, I didn't answer the second part of your first question, which was about the impact. And I think this is why it's really important for us to um characterize the language difficulties because it does have a really big impact if you think about how you use language every day you know to watch television to talk to your family and friends to do your work to learn to understand from the news what's going on in the world all of these things involve language it's super important for being able to participate in our society and so that's why i think it's really useful regardless of other things uh, that might be affecting the child, to be able to characterize language
1: strengths and then the aspects of language that that particular child is finding challenging. You led a team from UCL
0: for a major study that's... Reference Referencing loads of places. Yeah, well, the scales, scales project—it's project, oh, been a that. big
2: part of my life for a long time. Um, and what I wanted to do was to uh, really track uh, what happens if you start school and your language skills are not where we expect them to be. What impact does that have on your learning, on your well-being, on your academic attainment? Um, and later, we wanted to know how does that affect things like mental health as children make the transition into secondary school. So what we did is we screened over 7,000 children when they started school. Now, oh gosh, an astonishing 12 or 13 years ago now, a long time ago. um, and we, we screened them uh, using teacher reports of their language use in the classroom. And then we uh, selected quite a big uh, cohort of about 600 kids, some of whom their language skills were absolutely fine. And for others, we thought that they might have uh, language difficulties. In year one, we did a full kind of, um, research diagnostic assessment, so lots of standardized tests, parent questionnaires, teacher questionnaires. We measured um, functional impact in terms of their behavior on a measure called the strengths and difficulties questionnaire. And we also had a measure of functional impact in terms of how well they were doing at school. And from all that information, we estimated how many children we thought had language disorders. Uh, including DLD and including language disorder with other conditions. And then we tracked that cohort in year one, year three, year six, and then we tried to see them in year eight, uh, but COVID had other plans for us. It really disrupted our final wave of data collection. Um, But we did manage to see about half of them in year eight. So we have some idea how they they did at school. So it's been a really exciting study. That's the study where the prevalence estimates come from. So when you hear two children in every classroom, that's from our study. But we've done we've also done quite a lot on looking at what is the relationship between language and well-being? What's the relationship? How how well does language predict children's social and emotional processing skills later in in their development? um, we're looking at their education pathways now so we've been able to link our data to the national people database and so we're looking at um, yeah what sorts of education provision they get when does it change how does it change how does early language predict your education outcomes in year 6 for the whole cohort so there's just such a wealth of data and information that we've learned from that study
1: it's been it's been a huge privilege to lead that study that's
0: amazing and I think often for for language therapy is a a profession particularly when it comes to research and studies we don't always get the big numbers so to have something (laughs) on the scale that you've you've been leading is just it's amazing for us for research and for for understanding and and just bringing um a bit more weight to yeah to I think
2: what we're bringing I think you're right I think because uh, once you have those big numbers, numbers it's pretty convincing so that's, story that's, that's it's a tricky story though I mean I think um I think the most challenging thing that we've learned is just how persistent language disorders are um so there's huge variation in, in children's language development and all kids make progress um but the gap the gaps are there and they stay there. They seem pretty uh, resistant to change. The flip side of that um, and the good news, I think, uh, and it was kind of surprising to me, is that the children who are at the very bottom of the distribution, who usually have quite complex needs, so they're the kids who have language disorders and additional things going on, they do make progress. And their rate of change is the same as everybody else. So they stay at the bottom, but they are improving in real terms. Um, they're not flatlining. And so I think that that's been, for me, really interesting because it, for me, the kind of big scientific question is well, what makes them start at such a lower rate if their progress is the same? Uh, and so that raises some really interesting questions about causes and processes. But I think it also indicates, you know, just how powerful good universal education provision is. You know, it, it is, obviously there's always room for improvements, but actually schools do a really good job of teaching kids stuff uh, and, and most kids can benefit. So that's been really good news. So it's, it's
1: taught me a lot for sure. Yeah, uh, that's amazing.
0: I wanted to ask a little bit about the um, the prevalence, so the, the skills projected, yep. kind of showed that two in a class of 30, is it? Yep, two in a class of 30 would qualify for a diagnosis of DLD. Our skills don't yep. necessarily always reflect that number, just Due to maybe not being diagnosed or not being yeah. up. Yeah, so one thing you to remember is it's have any an Have as to why that might an, be? On
2: average, so we say on average, you would expect 7.5% of the population to have a language disorder that is causing them difficulties in in their schooling or in their everyday life, uh, and another 2.3% who have these language disorders that are part and parcel of something else. But that's on average. And one thing uh, we know is that that prevalence rate might be higher in areas of significant socioeconomic disadvantage and it might be lower in more affluent areas. And again, I think this is coming back to that um, gene environment mix where we know that um, DLD tends to run in families. And if you have language disorder, it's very hard to go on to university and to get jobs that are really high paying because they involve really good verbal skills. and then you kind of get this bit of a cycle. That's not to say that's the case always. And uh, in our data, you know, we looked at the prevalence rate in really disadvantaged areas. and it's about 13%, I think. Um, it's higher than than the average. But that means the vast majority of kids in disadvantaged backgrounds are doing. Fine. So um, I think that's important to remember uh, when we're thinking about what the processes are that give rise to those language disorders. So just, just the context is going to affect the prevalence estimate to some extent. And there definitely is a bit of an issue with children not getting diagnosed and not getting diagnosed early and um, so in our original report we said only about half of the kids that we identified um, had ever seen a speech and language therapist or been referred to a speech and language therapist um that changes over time uh, so we can see in our MPD data that um by the time they get to year six you know at least 75 percent of them have come into somebody's uh come to somebody's notice and they're receiving extra help. Um, but it seems that that we might be able to do a bit better with that. And I, I understand that there's, um, that sometimes speech and language therapists don't feel very confident about diagnosis and that there is a lot of pressure on time to make a proper diagnosis. But I hope that that, that will change because I think it's important for kids to understand why they're finding school so difficult, why they find talking to friends difficult. And I think it's also really important for families to have that process where they can speak to somebody about the challenges that they've been experiencing and get some understanding of what's going on. And more importantly, what they can do to support their their child or young person to, to to over, well, overcome or compensate for some of the challenges that they're having. And it's also really useful to have a diagnosis because then you can start to talk to other people as well. Um, and with a diagnosis, we can raise awareness in the teaching profession, in mental health services. Um, it just gives us a point of reference that we can start
1: uh, developing a mutual understanding, I think. Yeah, I, I agree. I often
0: talk about when people talk about labeling um, children autistic and, and often say, you know, you get people that say, you know, the labels don't matter. And while yeah, the label in itself yeah. doesn't really matter, but for that individual, that's their identity. And it's quite important for them to understand who they are and, and why they might feel the way they feel, I think, for, for long term for their mental health. I, and I agree. And actually, you
2: can see that as, if you person, when you I go onto really the Rattled important. website. You know, we, we started Rattled to kind of raise awareness. But I think one of the really pleasing things that has happened from that is it's a platform for young people to share their experiences. And uh, what we have found is that most young people really do you appreciate having that diagnosis and being able to identify as, oh, I've got DLD and this is what it means, you know? Uh, And they say, we want everyone to know what DLD is so that they can have a better understanding of of me. Um, So I do think it can be quite powerful. Now, not everybody will like that. And my view is if you get to a point where, you can make an informed decision and tell me that you don't want the label and why then we've done a good job because you need quite good language skills to be able to do that so i think that's fine you know not everybody will want to keep that
1: diagnosis but there there is a process and and i think that process can be very helpful yep absolutely we we chatted quite a bit and
0: and university about um, the diagnostic criteria and how it changed from SLI, so specific language impairment, to DLD. And I often wonder whether that's maybe had an impact on SLT's diagnoses, the SLT's that have been in the field for a bit longer and were used to the SLI criteria where they maybe needed um, Mm. an IQ evaluation. Whether Yeah, that's I think, um, their, you their know, if I ruled the world, to, to then we would uh,
2: be doing diagnosis in, in multidisciplinary teams. I think it's, I think it's a tough call to, uh, as a, a singular speech and language therapist, to be able to make these differential diagnoses. Although I would hope that we can develop clinical skills so that speech and language therapists could say, well, I think this child might have broader intellectual disability, so we need to refer on or this the alarm bells for some other condition are, are ringing maybe we need to have uh, another team look at the child as well there's no doubt that the non-verbal criteria has been quite controversial um in part i think because it means that a number of of A larger number of children qualify for a diagnosis than would have done under SLI, but those children have always been there, right? (laughs) And they they do have language needs that that really need addressing. So the reason that it, it came about was because, you know, the evidence for SLI just was becoming more and more untenable. SLI came about in in the 80s when Chomsky was talking about, you know, a language acquisition device and these really circumscribed areas of the brain that would process language that could be selectively impaired as they are in in aphasia sometimes. But, you know, the more we learn about the brain and the typical development of the brain, the more we know that that's just not the case. Um, And when people started doing genetic studies, what they found is that, the genes that influence SLI are largely the same as the genes that influence language disorder when other things are going on as well. So there's really no evidence that the underlying differences are meaningful in those two conditions. The other thing you can see is just, you know, a pretty robust correlation between the two. know, not always, you you. You can always find kids who have uh you know relative strengths or relative differences. But if you look at the population as a whole, uh there's a pretty tight correlation. And you know what that means is that the kids with the most severe language difficulties very often have broader issues, and that makes sense because your brain just isn't developing the way we would expect it to, and that's going to affect multiple systems. And then the final uh Thing is to note that a lot of the ways that we test nonverbal ability, um, they're problem-solving tasks. And you can see that kids who don't have language difficulties will use language to solve them, because language is an amazing problem-solving tool. So if we're, you know, if we're excluding children who are doing badly on those tests from services, then we're probably excluding the kids who need us the most. In our study, what we we did show is that there wasn't huge difference in the cognitive uh, or behavioral profiles of children who had slightly lower nonverbal abilities, where you did see big differences were when kids had additional diagnoses. So just, just relaxing the nonverbal IQ cri- criteria a bit doesn't give you a wildly different profile. But when you have a language disorder that's co-occurring with another condition, then children tended to have more severe language difficulties, more severe behavioral challenges. Um, and I think so I think that the the SLI criteria just aren't evidence-based
1: and we need to move with the times. Yep, yep, definitely. Thank you. Um, so for any listeners who may be
0: teachers um, teaching in school or, or and even in nurseries, what might DLD look like? Yeah,
2: in, so in the uh, if there are any teachers or nursery, nursery uh, well. workers listening, uh, go to the Rattled website because there's quite a few videos that are aimed specifically at teachers about spotting the signs of DLD in the classroom and supporting kids in the classroom. I think um, the, the presentation can vary. So sometimes you might have kids, particularly in nursery, who, who are showing more uh, disruptive behavior or uh, in school, they might think kids are naughty because they're not following directions or they're always, you know, one step behind everybody else. And they might interpret that as like willful, bad behavior. Um, but it can come from I don't understand what you're saying to me um, so I don't know what you want me to do or a frustration that you know they're not getting their messages across. The other kind of pattern that you tend to see kids who are very quiet um, they, they're on their own they don't really have good social networks or social relationships that might be because they're finding it difficult to engage. In terms of schoolwork You know, making that transition to literacy is really hard. So, if you have kids in your classroom who are really struggling to learn how to read, it would be very good to get their language checked out. Um, And I think, yeah, again, it's it's often you can just see them in in the the classroom or in the playground, and they're really not engaging with our peers in quite the same way because they can't access those conversations. They don't understand jokes. They you know get frustrated when when people are laughing they don't know the rules of the game so everybody gets cross with them um so those are the kinds of things that I would look out for and to just be mindful that
1: if if kids aren't following instructions it might be because they don't understand what you've said to them yep and do you think for older children
0: so children that are sort of going up the school maybe into secondary school does that social gap increase as they get older as a sort of social nuance yeah well exactly complex? right Language and that's why the, um, and the
2: i'm so gutted about the disruption to our testing because that is exactly one of the things that we wanted to look at i think um when, when we talk to parents uh, they often say that going into secondary school was when things really started to break down because, you know, primary schools, uh, there's perhaps more scope to have really structured environments, lots of repetition, you've got the same teacher, um, they could kind of cope. But then when you go to secondary school, um, everything, like you said, is more challenging. Social relationships are more complex and more nuanced and um, You're changing teachers all the time. The coursework is much harder and much more reliant on your reading skills. The sorts of language you need is much more complex and much more abstract. And so parents report that things just really become a lot more challenging in many different ways. Uh, And certainly um, we've been looking at, uh, I have someone who's uh, wanting to do a PhD with me and she's really interested in how teenagers with DLD access things like the PHSC curriculum and we've had some really interesting conversations with teachers about how they approach um, that those sorts of topics. uh, Which are challenging for all teenagers, but the strategies they use are things that really make it hard for kids with DLD so you know you they they report that it's hard for teenagers to talk about their own feelings and their own relationships. So one way they get at that is to use hypothetical situations where you have to, you know, imagine what somebody else is feeling in this hypothetical situation and then talk about it to one of your peers. So you can just see multiple ways in which that's going to break down. And unfortunately, the level of speech and language therapy support at secondary school drops off a cliff. Um, and certainly one of the things that's coming through in our analysis of the National Pupil Database is that um, the, the kids who are uh, acknowledged as having speech, language and communication needs changes. So it's not, I think secondary schools are even less aware of what DLD is and what In what the implications of that are so yeah it's i think secondary school is a challenging time and we really do need a lot more research on how best to support kids during adolescence but also um, it would be i think fruitful to have even more provision potentially during that transition period and also at the end of secondary school you know what what are these young people going to do? What are the good uh, options for them? How will they get support as they move into adulthood? Um,
1: you know, we really, we really need a lot more work in that space, I think. Yep, absolutely. So the, the majority of, of, of MARU
0: and, and work is universal and targeted. So about 95% of what I do is universal and targeted work. And the more that the longer I'm in the role, which isn't very long, but the longer I'm getting into it, the more I'm seeing the benefit of the universal work. So, we do a bit of work around communication friendly environments in schools. And I mean, it benefits, it's not going to be benefit anybody except from everybody. It's just, I'm very, very passionate about it because I'm seeing how the, such a positive impact that that can have on, on the children in and, and the schools and also that the teachers teach. And, and we do do that for secondary schools as well, which is which is lovely. But what kind of other supports would be necessary for individuals with with a language disorder? So, in terms of specialist interventions, do they have good outcomes? Well, or would it's an it's an open question. Stuff okay, so we don't treatments? have
2: uh, very good trials of of universal uh, of universal provision. There's not many targeted, there's not many trials of targeted interventions for older kids. What we know about targeted interventions, though, for younger kids is that, first of all, few of them look at at kids who actually have clinical conditions or diagnoses. They tend to just pick up kids who are at the lower end of the distribution. And um, basically, the message is that most of those kids will make a small amount of progress, but that progress is not maintained. So, uh, well, the difference between that group and the groups that don't get the intervention is not maintained in the longer term. And basically what we, we are seeing over and over again is that you can teach specific skills, but they tend not to generalize to other things. So, you know, one of the reasons we might be really invested in early intervention is because we think if we can give you a boost, then kids can use that to learn other stuff. And that, that is pretty elusive, I would say, at the moment. I think one of the things we have to work out is what's the goal of all of this. And it might vary and it probably should vary maybe at different points in development or what the needs of the individual are. The thing about universal, it is really important because you do want kids to be able to participate in the classroom, to make friends. You want teachers to be aware and to be able to adapt what they're doing. And that's fine. But like you said, everybody benefits, which is great, but it means the gap is there. So if you want to make the gap smaller you need to do something else, okay? So what we show, the best interventions we have are education at the moment, because, you know, they're long-term, you're spending several hours a day there, you know, you're getting lots of input from peers as well as from teachers. It's a more homogeneous input. So those kind of early very vari- environmental variations matter less because everybody's getting the same thing at school, but you've got this really long tail. So if you want to bring that tail up, You need to do something for them. I do think specialist interventions have a place. And I think they do lots of different things. One of the things you can do is is teach new language skills. And there is value in doing that, right? I mean, there's certain things you just need language to be able to do. And we've been thinking about what would that look like? you know do do speech and language therapists need to teach curriculum vocabulary probably not you know we probably need to have discussions with teachers about the things that our kids are likely to find challenging and maybe give them new strategies for for uh pre-teaching or reinforcing that new vocabulary but I don't really think speech and language therapists need need to teach it and in fact that might be one of the reasons that Intervention effects aren't maintained because eventually kids will get that information from schools and and the control group will as well. So I think it's a really interesting question. What sort? Where do where do speech and language therapists add value? What kind of language skills do young people need that they're not going to get from everyday teaching? Our current working hypothesis is that language around emotion and emotion processing and that peer negotiation and all that kind of stuff might be really important um, and it might be trainable, malleable, learnable. It would be interesting to know then if if you did improve that what the long-term effects would be. Um, But I I do think that many kids need extra support to learn language. The big challenge for us is how do you do that and how do you do that in a sustainable way over a long period of time. I don't think short-term interventions have the lasting effects we would like them to have. That's what our randomized controlled trials tell us. Um, But like you said, the other thing we need are big trials because I've just done a a meta-analysis with a colleague in, in Norway, which I hope will come out soon. And we just, it's very hard to say anything definitive because the trials are really small. So we definitely need to think differently About the sorts of interventions that we deliver and what we want them to do, uh, and what good outcome would look like,
1: and then we need to have some proper trials to evaluate those. Yep. So I suppose for speech language therapy as a
0: profession, I always remember when I sort of first went into speech and language therapy, being told, you know. Compared to other professions, it's very much still in its infancy. You know, we're a profession of, you know, just a hundred years now, just a little over a hundred years. And so we're still, you know, we've still got a, a we yeah, to go?
2: I and I do think we've of, made a lot of, of, of progress. And um, and I, I uh, write a textbook with a colleague in the US and this is now the third revision I've been involved in. And, you know, it's really interesting when I do it to see where the changes are. And I, I do think things have moved on a lot. And I do think we've got much better understanding of how kids learn and what the natural course of language disorders are. And we do have a much better understanding of of how trials work and what you need for trials. But I think there's still some massive unanswered questions. And I think the really big, big challenge is that it's hard. It is hard to change language. That doesn't mean we shouldn't try. And I think we
1: just need to be creative and innovative about how we do it. Yep, definitely. Sorry going back a little bit when we we're talking about high school and
0: um, secondary school and, you know, you were saying, you know, what happens to these children after they leave high school? And and I, I was just talking yesterday actually about the statistics around young offenders and I think it's around 60% of, of young offenders qualified for diagnosis of language disorder and between 60 to 90% had speech, language and communication needs and I know our awareness of that is increasing so hopefully sort of broader awareness will also be increasing around that within the sort of justice system and police and and courts and and things like that do you know so there are uh, there are a
2: few people who are doing work in that space for sure and I know that the youth justice service are, are really interested in this because when they they put Forward um, evidence to the send review. And what they found was that 71% of kids who were sentenced in a two year period in England and Wales had uh, speech language and communication needs. I think there's lots of reasons for that and and if parents are listening I don't want them to be alarmed because that's the percentage within a population who have language disorder it's not the percentage of kids with language disorder who will go on to be offenders right very small percentage of kids actually do go on to be be offenders it's just that the ones that that do get into trouble invariably have language disorder and you can imagine that for all kinds of reasons right? Language is a useful tool for self-regulation. It's a useful tool to remind yourself that, you know, if you hit someone or you shoplift something, we can all think about what the consequences might be because we can engage in that future thinking and we can keep multiple possible outcomes in mind at the same time. We can use language to weigh up those risks. Also, when, when kids get caught, the first thing people ask them is, what happened, what did you do? Really complicated to answer that kind of question if you don't have language. Um, if people impose rules to try and keep kids in line, if you don't understand time concepts or, again, consequences, it's really hard to follow those instructions. So there's just multiple ways in which language can can let you down. And I think the other thing that we need to be aware of is that it's much harder for young people who have language disorders to negotiate their way out of tricky situations, which makes them very vulnerable. You know, they will be targeted by people who are up to no good because they're they're more vulnerable. And less likely to tell on them because they don't have the language skills to do so. So I think um, the youth justice teams are aware of that. Like everything, you know, it depends on funding uh, and it depends on evidence. But certainly, you know, there is there is an awareness and a will to do things differently and to try and prevent that from happening. And this is why I think, you know. I think it's good that the therapists are engaged in uh, universal provision, but I really think we should start um, upping our game in terms of that specialist support, because it might be that, yeah, specialist support might not normalize a language trajectory. I think that's a really hard thing to do, but it might keep kids out of trouble and that would be a fantastic outcome. Right. So if we were seeing more kids and, and, Uh, tracking what happens to them and providing them with support early on, one really positive outcome might be that we reduce the number of kids uh, getting into trouble, reduce the number of kids who have significant mental health concerns. uh, And that's
1: worth us thinking about as a profession, definitely. Absolutely. I I think as well,
0: even if we're teaching strategies to to the the kids and, and the young people you know comprehension monitoring and yeah. being able to say actually I, I don't understand that um can you explain in a, in a different way so I think that's also a really important aspect as well as to teach yeah teach and I think raising awareness and, and really thinking about practical tools like there
2: bracelets that might say I have language disorder so that if they do get in trouble then the the people know that they need support with that child's language so um I think these are things that are coming and hopefully we'll get there
1: sooner rather than later <laughs> definitely so I've just have two more
0: questions left for you so there can be quite a lot of crossover between language disorder and autism and, and sometimes they come hand in hand as well what would be the the key differences for for clinicians to tease apart so if somebody has a individual in their caseload that is presenting with language disorder and that you know from the standardized testing or from the, the assessments that they've been doing that looks probable however they're unsure whether there's like an underlying... Yeah, like so that's a good, as, as good well. question. How, how and um, cheese, when I talk part. about
2: this, I often say there's lots of, uh, like when you're doing a diagnosis, a differential diagnosis, you're drawing on lots of different pieces of information. So standardized tests is only one piece of information. Um, you would want to get information from families and find out what their biggest worries are, but also family history and early child history so when they met their language milestones and one thing you would particularly want to um, ask parents about is whether they had any language regression so was there a period of time where the child had developed some words but then stopped using them or stopped using language um, that can indicate uh, not just autism, but it could also indicate an uh, acquired epileptic aphasia. So that would need to be investigated. Um, but language regression is really unusual in DLD. So if, if parents are reporting that, then that should be like light bulbs going off saying, right, we need to look at this uh, differently. I think also finding out, you know, how does the the child interact with the parent or or communicate with the parent and what are their friendships like with other kids those can that kind of information from families can give you some clues but the other thing we're really good at doing I hope is just our clinical observations so if you're in clinic you might be just keeping an eye out to see does, is the child exploring the room Does the child bring cool new stuff, uh, either to parents or to you? Does the child turn when you call his or her name? Um, Do they point at things? You know, if you think about um, kids who are developing as we would expect them to, you know, they are really interested in people and they are really interested in, in getting information from people. So it won't be long. They don't take long to warm up and, then they'll bring you stuff and, and try and get you engaged in some kind of interaction. So if they're not doing that, then that would be an indication. Uh, and also it, for older kids, it might just be their willingness to engage in, in some kind of back and forth conversation. So that those are kind of social cues that might indicate that something's different. Of course, the other thing that is uh, important for an autism diagnosis are these kind of more restricted interests and behaviors and routines? Um, and again, you can get some information from families about that. So, what are their particular interests? Sometimes they can be very unusual interests. Uh, sometimes they can be unusual in their intensity. So if you if you try and get the child to stop doing it or do it a different way, then it leads to distress. Um, It might be about rigidity. uh, It might be about sensory interests. So you kind of have to have a a little bit of an eye out when you're observing a child to see whether you see any evidence of that. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my early career looking at the language variation within autism, and that again, is a really (laughs) interesting topic because I think there's always been an assumption in autism research that it is the autism that causes the language difficulties. But actually, I think, um, I mean, you can meet individuals who are clearly autistic, uh, but actually have pretty good language in terms of their vocabulary and the complexity of the sentences that they have. And other people who will have similar autism profiles will have really impaired language. So it's not just a consequence of having autism. And I think that's important for people to realize because that does affect what you do about the intervention. You know, you might not want to fix the autism. I think that lots of people would say that's not a good thing to do anymore, but you might want to focus specifically on the language because the language will allow uh,
1: people to participate and to self-advocate and things like that. Absolutely. Lovely.
0: Thank you very much. And just finally, a top yeah, tip. Good. <laughs> well, of course, course it's going to vary to some disorder.
2: degree, depending on the child. But I would say so this is one question I had to ponder for a while. What would be my one top tip? And I think it's going to be time. So people with language disorders just need that little bit more time to process what you've said to them you might need to break it down or to give a visual. So a gesture or some visual image to support what you're saying. And they need time to respond. So if you've said something and asked them a question, uh, it might just take a little bit longer than it would for somebody else for them to formulate an utterance. And then you might want to say it back to them to check that you've understood. Um, I think that would be my top tip. And we probably all would benefit from slowing down a little bit and taking a bit more time, I think. It's my absolute pleasure. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. That's great. Thank you so much.